The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That last forever Know His hope And sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world Falls around me I rest And know That He has found me Christ the rock Is my foundation Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome again to Pastor Yeshua. As stated in an earlier episode discussing types and shadows, when we study all of Scripture, we tend to see that indeed God seems to create all things according to a pattern which testifies of Him. As we continue to look and study the visible and invisible things of creation, we are able to increasingly see God's reflection to some degree in that mirror. When these examples occur within Scripture, we characteristically refer to them as types or shadows. We shall also see that ultimately, as with all Scripture, that these types and shadows point to the substance which is Jesus. In the previous 13 episodes, we took an in-depth examination of various types, shadows, and the substance which were revealed by God through the book of Exodus and Numbers. In doing so, we saw how God used the historical saga of Israel's entrance, bondage, and eventual deliverance from Egypt by Moses, parallels, and in fact foreshadows its substance 
depicting all God's people who have entered into bondage of sin and are delivered from their sin through grace, by faith, in the finished work and imputed righteousness of Jesus. In the last episode, we continued our study via chapter 16 of the book of Numbers. In this episode, we fast forward to chapter 20 of Numbers. Here, Israel comes to Kadesh, where there is no water for the congregation to drink. As you might already be guessing, the congregation, upon becoming thirsty, begins to once again chide against Moses. Israel puts on their broken top ten hits complaint record, playing the familiar refrain that they wish that they had remained in Egypt or died in the wilderness. Beginning in verse 8, God responds, saying, quote, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink, unquote. Now, for those of you who feel that this sounds familiar, congratulations and kudos for paying attention to God's Word. In episode number 8 of this series, we examined Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. In particular, look at Exodus chapter 17, verses 5 and 6, which says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod wherewith thou smotest the river. Take in thy hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink." As the initial step of understanding the ongoing type, shadow, and substance given here, we must first make a comparison between the incident given in Exodus chapter 17, verses 5 and 6, and Numbers chapter 20, verse 8. Now, there are some minor differences between the two, but one in particular provides the answer to a question which many people ask, namely, why did God prohibit Moses from entering the promised land? The important difference which we need to focus on is this. In Exodus chapter 17, verses 5 and 6, God instructs Moses to, quote, strike the rock, unquote, to obtain the water therein. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 8, God instructs Moses to, quote, speak ye unto the rock, unquote, to obtain the water therein. In the case of Exodus chapter 17, verses 5 and 6, Moses struck the rock as instructed, obtained the water as promised, and all was well. In the second case of Numbers chapter 20, verse 11, instead of speaking to the rock as commanded, Moses does the following, quote, And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also, unquote. As a consequence of this action by Moses, we see God's reaction in verse 12. Quote, and the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, 
Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them." Unquote. So, by reminder, as discussed in episode 8, we have the rock who Paul identifies in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, as the type of Christ which was and is intended by God to provide the children of Israel, and by extension all God's people, with living water with which to quench their thirst. In the first case, as is explained in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 through 5, and other passages, it would be necessary initially that Jesus should suffer and die, be crucified, die, i.e. be struck, rise again, and be ascended in order that his completed propitiatory sacrifice he might be able to make final atonement and completed ultimate justification for all who will by faith believe and by his grace have Christ's righteousness applied via the sprinkling of his blood to our hearts and our lives. Once Christ's sacrifice is applied to our lives, his spirit breathes the newness of life eternal into us, and like the type of the rock in the wilderness, Christ, the substance and better rock, provides living waters according to John chapter 7, verse 38. Quote, he that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, unquote. Now, the question is, what is the big deal with Moses striking the rock a second time in Numbers chapter 20, verse 11, instead of, quote, speaking to it, unquote? Does the mere misunderstanding, not taking God literally, or disobedience in such a small matter really necessitate God denying Moses crossing into the promised land? Why is God being so severe? The theological answer to this question is answered by Paul as inspired by the Holy Spirit in Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 6. Quote, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame." Unquote. What these verses tell us is that the type and the proposed substance here are precisely on target. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 11, God instructs Moses to speak to the rock in order to obtain the water from the rock. This type is there as a critical reminder of the substance intended. Namely, that for those who have already, as phrased by Hebrews, been made partaker of Christ's propitiatory sacrifice through faith, who attempt to do so again, quote, crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame, unquote. If, by God's grace, we, who are Christ's outcalled ones, have truly been reconciled to God through Christ, then we can no longer be separated, just as Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39 state, quote, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So instead of striking the rock, God instructs Moses to speak to the rock to obtain water. In this instance, the water being sought was not the type for salvation, for justification, or for the newness of life, because in God's economy of salvation, reconciliation once obtained is forever established. However, having been reconciled to fellowship with God, every child of God will, if sincere, desire, as does God, for our fellowship to grow and to flourish. The spiritual growth to maturity of which we speak is called sanctification. We don't achieve sanctification, greater spiritual maturity, greater fellowship, or intimacy with God through works, efforts, or merits, any more than these were instrumental to establishing the relationship to begin with. Neither do we achieve them by reapplying Jesus' propitiatory sacrifice. To do so would be to crucify Christ afresh, or as in the type, to strike the rock a second time. This is prohibited, just as God prohibited Moses. Just as in the type, after the rock, i.e. Christ, has first been struck and we have obtained his life-giving spirit, i.e. water, we are therein to speak, i.e. to exercise faith, to obtain what the rock, i.e. Christ, desires to give us. In this case, God desires to fill us each day with his indwelling presence, his abiding love, and to have his transforming, life-giving power, typified by the water from the rock, which renews, sustains, refreshes, overcomes, and gives victory over our old nature. The critical significance of this type was so important to God for us to understand that when Moses struck the rock, the type of Christ, a second time, God was forced to disqualify Moses from entering the promised land, i.e. heaven. This is because if God had ignored Moses' act of striking the rock a second time and allowed him into the promised land, then that would have constituted an incorrect type and inferred a potential substance wherein mankind is allowed or encouraged to continually crucify Christ afresh, i.e. strike the rock, routinely, rather than to exercise trust and faith in his finished work. Paul argues against such an error in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 19-28. through 28. Quote, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, 
This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time, without sin, unto salvation." By virtue of God's attention to detail as well as Moses' honesty and humility in recording it, we have learned a great truth regarding the rock, i.e. Christ, and our relationship to him. Before we move on too quickly, we might look at another type which follows as a result of Moses' failure here. Even within this departure from what God ordered, God uses the disruption to fit his plan. When Moses is barred from entering and leading God's people into the promised land, Joshua eventually succeeds Moses, and it is Joshua who leads God's people to the promised land. In the end, this transition provides yet another shadow and type. Moses represents several things within God's word. Admittedly, one of the more commonly understood types that Moses represents is that of the law. One can scarcely think of the Ten Commandments without simultaneously thinking of Moses. Even today, we call the law the Mosaic Law. In that vein, if Moses is the law, then perhaps the fact that Moses is prohibited from entering into the Promised Land, which is the type of heaven, is the substance meant to tell us that the law can never deliver us to heaven. The only way by which God's people will enter the promised land, i.e. heaven, is by following and trusting Joshua, who is the type of Jesus. If so, then this event and the outcome are indeed more than a coincidence. Turning from this event of the rock, Numbers chapter 20 verse 24 relays the changing of the guard from Aaron to his son, Eleazar, as Israel's high priest. From this point on, the role of Israel's high priest would be passed down, transferred from generation to generation. This process would continue until Israel's Messiah, Jesus the Christ, arrived. Jesus assumed the ultimate role of our great and eternal high priest when he stated, quote, It is finished. Unquote. This signifies that an opening, a way of entrance from God to man, has been made possible by God's hand and by his hand alone. 
It can never be made possible from man to God any more than the tear was from bottom to top. That way, that door, Jesus, is made possible by God alone. In Numbers chapter 21, verse 4, Israel has just come from the victory of utterly destroying the Canaanites when they become weary and discouraged near Edom. As was so often the case, the people of Israel began to speak against God and against Moses, accusing them of bringing them into the wilderness to die of hunger and of thirst and of being tired of manna. In verse 6, God sent fiery or poisonous serpents among the people. Quote, and the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Unquote. In verse 7, Israel immediately seeks Moses and repents for their sin against God. In verse 8, God instructs Moses as follows quote, And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live." Unquote. In verse 9, Moses complies, quote, And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived." Unquote. John makes it abundantly clear that this is a type, but gives us the undisputed substance in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Quote, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Unquote. These verses provide the crucial key to understanding the type and its substance. When we think of sin, we may very well rightly think of the serpent, Satan, who is the one who ultimately leads us to distrust God and to be led into sin. The serpent in the garden might just as well have been a rattlesnake because the minute we took our eyes of faith and trust off God, the serpent struck us and we died spiritually. Our fellowship and relationship with God was broken. This incident with the brazen serpent is a short story reminder of the good news message. First of all, had God's people Israel trusted God and all of his love and provision, they would have never been led to take their eyes off God. Just like Adam and Eve, if they had not taken their eyes of faith and trust off God, they would never have been struck by the serpent and suffered separation, i.e. death, with God. Regrettably, they did, and as a result, the reality is that according to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, quote, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, unquote. Some may erroneously conclude that because the text says that God sent the serpents, that God in effect also sent sin into the world. But the truth is that in order for faith and hope to be meaningful to God and to us, faith must be to some degree difficult. It must in some regard fly in the face of what appears to be evident or possible by man. In the end, that which is miraculous and supernatural is simply what is 
impossible for man, made viable, natural, and a reality by God. When it is said that God sent the serpents, this is not meant to say that it was God's desire for the serpents to bite or kill anyone. Instead, I believe it is meant to say that the serpents exist and without separation and sin would have no power over us. But because we have separation and sin, the serpents are able to afflict us, bite us, and kill us. This is the illustration here in view. Israel, God's people, are here wandering in the wilderness. God has the desire to bring them into his promised land where they can fellowship together. God's people have not yet learned to trust God and his provision, nor are they exercising faith in Moses, their deliverer, the type of Jesus. As a natural result, whenever God's people deny God, lose faith, or rebel against God, they deliver themselves proportionally to the same degree to Satan, i.e. the serpent, and his various devices which are always designed ultimately to defeat and kill us. Now that we have fallen out of fellowship with God via sin, we have been bitten by the serpent and we have been all dying physically and spiritually despite all our efforts and works ever since Adam. In and of ourselves there is no remedy for the serpent's poison. We all will die. The good news is that God has a solution. God has a cure for the serpent's poison. In this case, God instructs Moses to construct a banner pole and to place a likeness of the fiery serpent upon that pole. A banner pole is similar to a flag. It is meant to be hoisted high in the air for everyone to see. Once posted, God gives his promise that those who look upon it shall live. More literally, in the first instance in verse 8, which says, quote, and the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass, that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Unquote. The word looketh has the meaning of, quote, to see or perceive, unquote. In the second instance, in the verse 9, which reads, quote, and Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived, unquote. The word beheld has the meaning of, quote, to regard, show regard to, pay attention to, or consider, unquote. So in this case, when God's people Israel realized that they had been bitten by the serpent, the power of sin, they were instructed to look at the very likeness and symbol of that serpent which had bitten them. Why? Well, in the short term, that they would be healed from the poison of the serpent which had bitten them. However, in substance, this type was meant to demonstrate the process of salvation itself. Salvation begins with the understanding that we have sinned, as stated in Romans, and that having been bitten by the serpent, we are separated by our sin from God. Now that we have looked upon and recognized our sin, we must confess our sin. 
We must have faith in the finished work, the atoning propitiatory sacrifice made by Jesus. We must look at and comprehend by faith the fact that Jesus took on the form of a man and as a man became a servant who lived a perfect, holy, and blameless life, righteous in all his ways before God the Father. Jesus, who knew no sin, took all our sins upon himself. As was foretold in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus' heel was bitten by the serpent, and he willingly suffered its poison to die upon the cross on our behalf. So, in effect, when Jesus was lifted up and crucified upon the cross, sin, all sin, was nailed there with him, just as in the type the serpent, who is the symbol of sin and its effect, was nailed to the pole in Numbers. This profound mystery of God's plan of salvation via Jesus was what God wanted the Israelites, God's people, and by extension all of us, to see and perceive. It was and is more than a simple seeing and looking with the natural eye. It is the difference between blindness and discernment. Perhaps the best correlation is Paul's conversion found in Acts chapter 26, verses 12 through 18. Quote, Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me, and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth... I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister, and to witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from thy people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me, unquote. Like the Israelites, everyone now bitten by the serpent, suffering sorrow, anguish, pain, and death, must be willing to look and by sincere faith see their sin, past, present, and future, crucified with Christ upon the cross. In the continuing message, we know our sin, our old nature, are buried with Christ and risen again with Christ, given a new nature, uncorrupted by sin. Many look, but do not see. Many see, but do not perceive. Many discern, but do not believe. For those who do, like the Gentiles to whom Paul was sent, their eyes are opened. They are turned from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God. They are healed and receive forgiveness of sins. They are justified and sanctified by faith in Him, and by grace they go from death to the inheritance of life eternal. This concludes this episode. 
Please join me again for part 15. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.